Hi, this is Kirk Reed. Bear with me as we need a little compliance disclosure. In our practice, we give financial advice to our clients. We know their financial situation in detail before doing so. That's generally not the case with callers we speak with on the show. We can't give truly meaningful financial advice because we don't know the detailed financial situation of the caller. After all, we just met. Any suggestions we make to callers are generic in nature and meant to steer a caller in the right direction. Callers should check with their own financial professionals before implementing any suggestions that we may make. At times on this show, we talk about investments and investment performance. Investment returns are not guaranteed, and past performance does not guarantee future results. You're listening to McNamara on Money. I'm clearly not Kirk Reed. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed. No worries. We're talking about all things legal planning today. Veteran guest on the show with me this morning, attorney Ben Cody with Styles Law in Marshfield, styles-law.com to find out more about his practice. Your picture's up there somewhere. I've definitely gone on to your website. There you go. You click on our firm and scroll down. Your picture is the, it's not the first one, Ben. It's not the second one. (laughs) It's the third one now. B Cody, C-O-T-E at styles-law.com to get in touch with Ben. More information on their website. Anyway, good morning. Thanks for being here again. We are talking about, I don't know, the importance of legal planning. We got into some, I don't know, I thought interesting psychology discussions about procrastination and why people do things and don't do things and don't follow through even if they know they should, et cetera, et cetera. And that applies to so many aspects of life wanted to get into, we talked about will-based planning and a little bit about trust-based planning, estate taxes, and some of the things that can be done from a legal perspective to minimize estate taxes due if someone has a taxable estate in Massachusetts. Generally not an issue for a lot of people at the federal level right now, but many people are of a net worth greater than a million dollars in Massachusetts where they would have Massachusetts estate taxes due. And there are some things you can do to minimize that should you want to proceed with some planning. And like we were talking about, if you have a big estate tax due at death. Congratulations. This is a good problem to have. There are ways you can uh, lower it potentially, but all in all, not a bad thing. So we wanted to get into, I wanted to talk about some of the, I guess the importance of legal planning when you're a young family or you have young children because now we're, Yes, they could have estate tax issues as well, but wanted to talk about as it relates to children, guardianship issues, conservatorship issues, stuff like that. So can we talk a little bit about the importance of planning for someone that has young children? Yeah, and that's a really important piece of what we work on. We work with a lot of clients that have young children. And when somebody comes in and I look at their questionnaire and they mention that they have somebody that's under 18, I change my tactic a little bit, or maybe tactic is the wrong word, but I start in a different place. I say, okay, our number one goal is to make sure that the kids are okay, and then we can talk about everything else. I've never had somebody say, hold on, let's talk about taxes <laughs> My kids first. aren't all that important. Right, yeah, right. Nobody says that. So we yeah. start <laughs> thinking about guardianship because that really weighs on people. Yeah. So if something happens to mom and dad, it's a little bit more complicated if mom and dad aren't married or aren't together. And we can get into that, I'm sure. But guardianship is a really important piece of the planning process. So what we do is we actually have two tools that we use in our toolbox. One is the guardianship nomination. So that's a document which lists out the people that you think would be a good guardian if you're not able to care for your kids yourself because you passed away or you have lost capacity for some reason. So ordinarily, we're naming family members, really close friends, and we set an order of people that the parent thinks is a good fit. 
It's not automatic. Okay. You would still have to go through court, and the judge is going to say, "Is what's in the best interest of the child? Is this a fit guardian?" In most cases, the person that's nominated by the parent is going to give be given really heavy weight, and the judge really isn't going to contradict that decision yeah, yeah. unless there's some evidence that comes to light that they're completely unfit. Okay. Uh, so maybe they have a substance abuse problem. Maybe they have some criminal charges that have since come out. That those are the types of cases where the judge might say, "You know what? We're going to go with somebody else." The other tool that we use is something called a temporary guardianship proxy. And the idea with this document is the court process can take a month, two months, however long it takes to actually conclude itself. And in the case where a family might have a disagreement, so let's say both sets of grandparents think that they're the best fit and they're not going to stand down, there is the possibility that a minor child would go into foster care while the guardianship question is being addressed with the court. So under the MUPC, which is the Massachusetts Uniform Probate Code, we have a tool which allows us to create a guardianship proxy. So we're up to 60 days the person listed on this document will be the guardian, even without a court order. And that gives the court time to address the concerns from all the parties and then make a final determination. What I've found is that a lot of people don't have this, don't even know it exists. Yeah. I think there are a number of attorneys that don't I've really know it that. exists. Yeah, it's Meaning that helps that helps the child avoid foster care while the permanent guardian is being Correct. Nominated or considered or whatever. Okay. And then there's other things huh. that it's useful for. So suppose there's a severe car crash and mom and dad are in a coma. They can't oh, sign documents. Okay. They can't talk yeah. to people. This document will say, okay, grandma is going to be the one that takes over and she's going to call the shots for the next 60 days. Who? What's the name of that document? It's called a temporary guardianship proxy. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I've never heard of that. Can you talk a little bit about, so for people that don't, haven't planned. Do you have any experiences with a couple passing away with young kids when they didn't plan and what's the process there? So I haven't had where both parents pass away, but I certainly have had where one of the parents passes away uh, while they have a young child and they actually come in and say, all right, now I really need to get this done. And the reason for that is in the absence of a will or a trust, the children would be the heirs of the estate, which is fine. The money has to be applied for their benefit. The problem is that they can't take money, so the child can't take money or assets until they turn 18. Right. So the court would appoint a personal representative, whether there's a, a, a long-term guardian appointed, whether that money is paid over to the guardian to manage. Basically, the money goes with the child, but it's the Wild West, so to speak. There's no restrictions on it. There's no protection for the, the potential creditors of the child, which we can oh. get into if you want to. Ooh, so much stuff we could get into. I'm writing down questions as you're chatting. Yeah, yeah. It's, okay. it's like an onion. We keep peeling back yeah. layers. I, but to answer your question, I haven't dealt with it where both parents have passed, but one, yeah. right, one parent has passed and it, it's a wake-up call. We need to think about a trust so that we can make sure the kids are taken care of, not just till they're 18, but we can make beyond sure that, that they're taken care of beyond that. And I do want to talk about that as well. But a couple other questions of the guardianship issue. So theoretically, if someone, if it was, God forbid, a young couple with young kids that passed away in a car accident together, and if they had not if they didn't have wills, so they haven't named this is who I want to be the guardian for my children after death, what's the process then? Yep. Does somebody have to step up and raise their hand and go to the court? And what if nobody does? So sad. That's such a sad thing to talk about. Yeah, that, but yeah. that's the unfortunate reality. This is why people sometimes don't want to do estate planning. There's but that doesn't yeah. make the problem go away. Okay, I know. Right? I know. I'm not telling you. Yeah, you, I know. But the, what would happen is essentially the court's going to wait for a petition. So anyone can come in and say, I want to be the guardian. So there's no order of appointment. So it's not, okay, because it's the grandmother, she gets first dibs. And then because they're the uncle, they get second dibs. 
anyone can apply and the court's going to look at what's in the best interest of the child. If okay. no one does step forward, then we're talking foster, about foster care, foster care. Okay, um, yeah, yeah. which is okay. in I, everyone I've talked to says that's not a possibility, but foster care exists for a reason. Mm. The best option is to say, let's name a guardian. And one thing that people sometimes get hung up on, and I think this is one of the things that can derail this conversation. They say, I haven't talked to this person about whether they could be a guardian or I was not. just thinking about that. And you don't have to. So a lot of the when people come in and say, I'll have to ask if they want to be trustee. I'm like, you can. That's certainly your call. But in a lot of cases, I say, let it be a surprise. The guardianship, I think it's easy to say no when the person's still alive. But if your sister or your, <laughs> if your sister or brother, right. uh, yeah. if they pass yeah. away and their kids are going to be in the foster system, you're like, okay, let's do it. I guess uh, you're If right. you're named. Yeah. And I, think it's, I would think it would be hard to say no when they're alive and looking at you also. Yeah, it can be. Either situation is is hard. Right. Yeah. But, but so you can name a guardian for so you're saying is you can name a guardian for your kids in the will. Don't have to that person doesn't have to be aware that you've named them. Correct. They would become aware after you passed away right. and they were notified. And they can always turn it down. Yeah. So it's not like they have to take the appointment. Um, and that's the other thing. If we have a list of five, six people, okay. we're going to get somebody that says yes. Yeah. I wouldn't necessarily get hung up on saying, okay, I got their permission on all these. One way to do it is simply to name them and then maybe at the next Thanksgiving dinner we're like, hey, just so you know, you're getting my three kids. Yeah. Which I have several people that have named me. I would potentially be getting a lot of children. Yeah. Um, let's hope that doesn't happen. That probably says a lot about yeah. you. <laughs> I am good at taking care of little people. Okay, and is it common for you to ask your clients for multiple names of guardians? I feel like I only named one person. Yeah. Maybe I named a backup. Okay. So I love backups. Yeah. Uh, and the reason for that is twofold. One, we never know what's going to happen. And so somebody could say, no, I don't want to be your trustee. I don't want to be your guardian. People get sick. Yeah. Let's say they're going through a health issue. Yeah, Maybe okay. they have dementia and people pass away. Yeah. So the more backups we have, the longer my documents that I prepare are going to work. Because then if, let's say you name your parents as guardians and then they pass away or they become a little bit older and unable to actually care for the kids, we have that next generation in place and you don't have to come back and name new people. Yeah. Okay, so if you've done a will and you've named a guardian for your kids in the will, that it still has to go through the court. A judge still has to, I don't know, probably authenticate the will and then determine that this person is the most fit. And someone can step up and contest, right, and say, no, I'm the more fit guardian for these children. And then it becomes up to the judge to make that decision. Yeah. So I guess that's a little, that's unfortunate that you could name someone in your will and that's not necessarily who would have guardianship. I was wondering if you had any experience like with a, a couple that has a child together, but they're no longer together. What if they each do their own will and they're naming separate guardians? Then I guess it's just the same thing. It goes to the court. The judge decides. Yeah. So yeah. the it happens very frequently okay. and the conversation is a little bit different. Ooh. So the let's say I'm talking to mom and she says, well, I want to name a guardian. I say, that's fine. But we have to remember that dad still has parental rights. So if you were to pass away, very likely dad's going to step in and take over full custody, full legal custody and physical custody. And there's really nothing we can do about that. We can't extinguish his rights with anything that right. we're going to draft here. But let's imagine a couple different scenarios. Let's say he doesn't stand up. Let's say he doesn't want to do it. Let's say he passes away a week later or a week before you. Stranger things have happened. In fact, I've been involved in cases where couples like that, not necessarily with minor kids, but they've... The, 
they've passed away, uh, an ex-husband, an ex-wife, they passed away within a, a couple days of I each other. I was just thinking, what are the chances that if you're not married, you pass away like simultaneously? Because you're not traveling together at that point, but yeah. that's interesting yeah. you've had that experience. Yep. And by having that guardianship nomination, we're saying, okay, judge, this is who we think is the right person. Yeah. And uh, just a tip of the cap to the other, the rest of the legal profession, so they know that you're aware of the rules, we usually say, to the extent that I'm able to name a guardian, I name this person. Anyone that reads your documents knows, okay, I know dad Dad's going to take over. I know mom's going to take over. But if they don't, this is who I think should do it. Okay. Let's go back to a traditional married couple with young kids. So obviously <laughs> naming legal guardian for your children, very important. What What are your thoughts regarding the financial custodian or is it a conservator? I don't know what the term that you guys use, but some attorneys will say you want to name a legal guardian who's different from a financial custodian. If, for example, a couple million dollars from life insurance or whatever for the benefit of the kids. What are What's your general thinking regarding naming different people? I think your listeners are going to be upset because I'm going to say it depends. Um, <laughs> but well, At least elaborate a little yeah, bit yeah, on of that. Of course. Yeah, give uh, us so some color. Usually we don't have a conservator. Usually if we're talking about this, we're thinking about trust planning. Okay. Okay. And so the financial decisions okay. are going to be made by the trustee of that trust. And there's two schools of thought. And I would say most people separate the money from the physical custody. And the best example I give is, let's say they're the same person. And let's say your brother is taking care of your kids. Your brother could say, you know what? I think the kids would really enjoy a boat. I think <laughs> yeah. we should use some of this money yeah. to get a boat. Yeah. And so obviously that rubs people the wrong way. They don't want to do that. Yeah. And so we'll name somebody else. But sometimes people will come in and say, the person I trust most in the world is this person. I can't imagine them doing anything bad to my kids. I can't imagine them doing anything bad to me. And in that case, I say, you know what? Yeah. They're probably the right choice. Yeah. And so it all depends on your relationship, what you've told me about that person and how c comfortable you are. Some people, I say, what about? And they say, don't even worry about it. Never happened. It might depend on the financial responsibility of that person as well. Someone might be a great parent, but maybe not have the, maybe not have any or as financial smarts or responsibility. It depends. Right. My brother and I have actually laughed at this before because I've named him as the legal guardian for my kids if Kirk and I were to pass and, and I also named him as a financial trustee or whatever and we've laughed about it and I was like you know what if you want to buy a huge house with my life insurance proceeds just make sure my kids get their own bedroom and go <laughs> for it but we've laughed about that yep but yeah, it comes down to trust. No pun intended. All right. What other issue facing families with young children? Obviously, guardianship of the kids. Yes, finances so going to young kids. Okay. How about you mentioned, you alluded to earlier, planning for if a significant amount of assets goes to the children, obviously, if they're under 18, then a custodian, guardian, trustee, whatever is named. But what about avoid the issues that pe people want to consider regarding even an 18-year-old stepping into control of significant amounts? amounts of money and this is where trust work comes in. So right. maybe talk through this that a little bit. Yeah. So one of the thought experiments or one of the questions that we talk about at our meetings, okay, let's say you were to both pass away and on your child's eighteenth birthday they received a check for X percent of the estate, what would their first step be? Some percentage of people say, oh, they would go talk to a financial advisor, they'd set up retirement accounts, they'd do X, Y, and Z that is a responsible use of the money. I would say the vast majority of people say, I think they'd go buy a Corvette. No, oh, yeah. Or yeah. I think they're going to throw a huge party, I think they're <laughs> going to do whatever. And that is the 
realistically, that's what I assume everyone is going to do, and we plan accordingly. So there's two ways to uh, think about this. Uh, one is to give the trustee discretion as to when and if the money is available to that beneficiary. So the trustee gets to say, okay, you're responsible now. Maybe they've turned 25, they've turned a corner. We're going to start giving you some of the principal. Sometimes we put in actual hard ages where people start to okay. have the right to request distributions. So maybe somebody turns 25, they can take the first third. If they blow that, they get another third at 30. If they blow that, they get another third at 35. If they blow that, they're on their own. Yeah. So there's a couple different strategies we can use to prolong that money so that it doesn't necessarily get squandered right when they turn 18. Yeah. Is it pretty common for parents to want to, for lack of a better term, withhold monies out till their kids are 30-ish, 35? Uh, yeah. So I would say that's not the majority. Most people are comfortable with their kids when they're in their mid to late 20s yeah. and having access to the money, but it all depends. So I've had people where they're teenager, young 20s children, maybe they have a substance abuse problem or yeah. they have a significant other or a spouse that they're not crazy about. And then we can think, let's give the trustee some discretion so they get yeah. to decide. Yeah. And then that way, the money isn't going to be split in an acrimonious divorce or it's not going to be spent on things that actually hurt their child. Yeah. I guess when your kids are really young, you don't, you know, when you're, ki when you're an older couple and your kids are already in their 20s, right? And you've sort it, it's more of a known, right? Do they have a substance abuse problem? Are they dating someone we're uncomfortable with right. or married? But when your kids are five or 10, you have no idea. Of course, you want to always think think the best, but doesn't seem to be much of a downside to planning and s stretching out the age at which they would potentially inherit large amounts of money if you're talking about someone with significant assets and or large amounts of life insurance, because like you just said, you can give the trustee discretion to release in advance. And, that's and my, you can always change it, which we talked about earlier. Right. That's my default position. Uh -huh. I think that's the best option because we don't know what's going to happen in the future. And we don't know if at 30 or 35, that person's going to be ready. And so by having the trustee, we're able to plan for that unknown. And we also don't know what's going to happen with spouses. So divorcing spouses are yeah. a huge problem because you can basically split the inheritance in half with some bad timing. Yeah, I feel like I've heard stories of, you hear stories about this, a divorcing spouse waiting to divorce until, you know, that their spouse reaches 85 and gets the last bit of the trust fund and then files for divorce and right. then half of it's gone. And yeah, that's unfortunate. Yeah, we've had clients in particular who either were the ones that lost half their inheritance or yeah. know somebody yeah. and, and it's just a matter of chance. Yeah. Does the person pass? around the time of a divorce? Or like you said, does somebody wait because they know that the parents are getting older? Yeah. I just had a thought, this is going in a different direction for a moment, but I just wondered if you could comment on some of the common mistakes I think people make are, like I hear this all the time where people will say, for example, when I'm asking, who do you want to name as beneficiaries on your retirement account? <laughs> so common for people to say, I'm just going to name this one of my kids and then he's going to just give it to everybody else. And it's, I hear that so much more frequently than I should. And so just wanted your take on that as well. My take is from, from a tax perspective, especially if you're talking about size amounts of money from a tax perspective, this is not a good idea from an income tax perspective or a capital gains tax perspective. It's if it's an unqualified account from an estate tax perspective, this is not a good plan from a legal perspective. This is not a good plan, even if you trust that person, but real quick, you've got like a minute and a half. What's your 
attorney take on that? Yeah. So if you had a camera in here, your listeners could see me physically recoil oh. when you said that <laughs> yeah. uh, because it is a profoundly bad idea. Yeah. And there are different flavors of this. Sometimes people say, oh, I put my daughter on my bank account. All right, yeah. I can live with that. Okay. But when you start saying, oh yeah, I named the life insurance beneficiary as one of my kids <laughs> and they'll split it. Yeah. We have to think about gift taxes. Right. We have to think about what happens if they just hold the money. Now we're basically guaranteeing a lawsuit. A legal battle. Um, yeah. To... To, for an attorney to come in and try and prove that what your intent was with, it, it's just, it's nasty. And the way around it is so simple, which is let's name all the kids on these beneficiary designations. So simple. Or in the alternative, if one of them isn't ready for that amount of money, you're a good candidate for a trust. Yeah. And a trust, it doesn't cost that much money to set up. I think that's the other misconception. It's not just for rich people. Plenty of people that are of limited means set up trust and it's completely worth every penny because they can avoid all the heartache and legal fees of that battle in the future. Yeah. And you and I know families, even the most, even lovely people and the most amicable families fight over money all the time. And I see it all the time. And yeah, people will say that I'm just going to name this person and I'll trust that they divided among the grandkids or this person can't be trusted. Same thing. And I'm like, please go see an attorney. Okay. We are just taking a break. We'll be right back. I do want to get into some Medicaid planning. These are people really, I think that information is really helpful. So let's do that after the break. You're listening to McNamara on Money. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed. You can find out more about me and my practice at McNamaraFinancial.com. This morning, chatting with Ben Cody, attorney Ben Cody with Styles Law, styles-law.com. We'll be right back. This is Mike McNamara. If you're looking for a financial advisor, start by asking him or her three questions. Number one, are you a certified financial planner practitioner? Number two, are you legally held to a fiduciary standard of care for your clients? And number three, do you only give financial advice and not sell investment products? These are all simple yes-no questions. If he or she doesn't answer yes quickly and starts talking, that's a no, and it's time to move on to another advisor. And we're back. Good morning. You're listening to McNamara on Money. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed. That break was not long enough. Ben and I were chatting and it was stretching and, oh, we need another couple minutes there. But, but alas, here we are. We're talking about legal planning today. I have attorney Ben Cody with me. He's an estate planning attorney with Styles Law in Marshfield. You can find out more about their practice at styles-law.com. Many of you probably recognize the name Styles from Mark Styles. He's on WATD every week, right? Every week. I don't know when his show is. Ooh, yeah. it's a weekday night, right? Yeah. It's a weekday night, Tuesday? Yeah. I can't remember. He also does a segment with Rob Hackla on uh, Fridays. Feel Good Fridays. Yes. Okay, I did not know that. Okay, we've taken the show in a lot of different directions and really good information, Ben. Thank you. I do want to get into... Medicaid planning from a legal perspective. I think this information is very useful to a lot of people. I think there's a lot of misconceptions out there regarding, and this is like one of those areas where I don't even really know where to start with this conversation, except so when we talk about Medicaid planning or planning for the potential need for long-term care and the significant expense that can go along with that, here's my take. No one wants to spend all their money on long-term care. No one really wants to even spend a significant amount of their own money on long-term care. No one wants to buy the insurance. 
Very few people want to buy the insurance. It is expensive. Yes, I could go on for two hours about where it makes sense and how it's leveraged and sometimes worth the money and all that stuff. But no one really wants to buy that insurance. No one wants the state to get any of their money if they need long-term care. And so that's that sort of leaves the only other option as, okay, what can I do from a legal perspective? I think it's the least, it's the most palatable of the options. So I guess just to back up a little, if someone needs in this, we're not even talking about medical care, we're talking about someone is physically healthy, but maybe mentally unwell or physically healthy in many regards, but just needs help with certain things, right? And so if there's not someone living with them that can care for them, you know, sometimes people need almost round the clock care, then it can get expensive. Home care can get very expensive depending on how frequently you need it. Care in assisted livings and nursing homes can get very expensive. The most recent statistic I saw was that nursing homes in Massachusetts can be $15,000 a month. It can be very expensive. And I haven't looked at the statistics recently, but someone with Alzheimer's, for example, can, you know, that's, this is financially maybe worst case scenario because someone can live for a very long time with Alzheimer's and that can get very expensive over several years. So that therein lies the financial problem, right? And like I said, no one wants to think about spending hundreds of thousands, if not more of their own assets, especially if you factor in taxes, if a large percentage of someone's assets are in retirement accounts, right? That's hard to wrap your head around that, that your portfolio could significantly decrease in size very quickly. This expense materializes in your life, which by the way is the statistics are the, what am I trying to say? It's fairly common that someone would need, that someone bears the expense of this. It's not uncommon. No one wants to, like I said, very few people want to spend the money on the insurance because it is expensive, but I can make a case for it in a lot of situations. And I do with my clients, having said that, still some of them don't want to pursue and they don't want the state to get their money. So that's where you come in. And then we sort of, I have these conversations all the time with my clients where I see fit. And sometimes I say, this isn't a fit, but oftentimes we talk about this and the risk to the portfolio and the potential expense. And that's my responsibility to make my clients aware of that. And again, no one likes the first three options, which is pay for for it or by the insurance and not very many people will qualify for Medicaid even if they even if they want to believe they would. So that's and then it comes okay, talk to an attorney. And that's where you come in, Ben. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah. at the beginning of the show you'd ask me, do people come in too late? And this is a topic yeah. that was in the back of my mind, this is where people come in too late. Yeah, all the time. Um, yep. as you said, there's three ways that long term care is paid for in Massachusetts. We have long term care insurance, which I can probably count on one hand. I think I'm up to five people that have had it when they ask. And the other way is with cash. So we're paying out of retirement accounts, out of bank accounts, cash type accounts. And then the third option is something called Medicaid or the Massachusetts version is called MassHealth. I might use those interchangeably. So the problem with long-term care is that Medicaid won't pick up the bill until you've spent down most of your assets. So if there are two people that are married, you have to spend down to approximately $125,000 in assets. You're allowed to keep one vehicle and you're allowed to keep one primary residence. Right off the top, we're potentially taking a large portion of their estate and paying for long-term care. Yeah. Let's say the second, it's, uh, we're worried about the second spouse, the first spouse has already passed away. They're actually expected to spend down considerably further. So to like $2,000. Yeah. yeah, they can still have that primary vehicle and the primary residence, but they're basically expected to spend down all their cash type assets. And then Mass Health will step in and they'll pay the shortfall. So let's say your income is $5,000 a month from a combination of social security, pension, whatever. Mass Health will pick up the difference between your income and what it costs to care for you. And I think it's something like a $17 a month 
allowance that you get for personal items. Like you said, nursing homes cost about $500 a day. So we're looking at anywhere from $14,000 to $15,000 for a single room with skilled round-the-clock care. It can be a little bit cheaper depending on the amount of care that's required. And MassHealth will pay for in-home care for skilled nursing if that makes sense for the particular member of MassHealth. The problem is, even if you qualify... MassHealth is mandated by the federal government to actually recover as much money as possible from the estate. Yeah. So let's say you have that primary residence, maybe it's paid off, it's worth six, $700,000 and that's your last large asset. MassHealth is going to start a tab. And every dollar they spend, they're going to try and recapture it from the value of that real estate. And if somebody stays in a nursing home for three or four years, the entire value of that home can be eaten up by the mass health claim. I actually had a client recently where that's exactly what happened. It was in Pembroke. There, her father was in a nursing home, spent down all his money. The value of the, the house was actually fairly healthy, but because of the long-term nature of his care, it basically was underwater, and they just okay. let it go to go, let it go to mass health essentially. So the the question becomes, well, how do we avoid that? That sounds pretty terrible. And the way that you qualify for MassHealth is they do something called a five-year look back. So they'll look at transactions that have happened in the last five years, and they'll say, were any of these for non-consideration or below fair market value? So things like paying for groceries, paying a mortgage bill, paying for a car, going on a reasonable vacation, those are all fine under MassHealth. The thing that is not okay is if you gift assets. Let's say you transferred the house to your kids or you gave away, you gave a gift of $15,000 to a grandchild for college payments. And so because of that five-year look back period, we need to start thinking about this five years, at least five years before you're going to need to qualify for MassHealth. And so the tool we often use is something called an irrevocable trust. So we had talked briefly about revocable trusts earlier in our conversation. Irrevocable trusts They're just like they sound. They cannot be revoked, which means they can't be amended. No changes. I've had clients or potential clients come in and say, oh, I want to change my irrevocable trust. And I have to say, I'm sorry, I can't help you. But by putting into an irrevocable trust where the adult children are the beneficiaries, it's taking it out of your estate. And if it's done at least five years, so more than five years before you go to apply for MassHealth, won't treat that as an asset and can't put a lien against that property. Mm. And so some clients say, I want to make sure that some inheritance goes to my kids. That's often the best way to do it because we're taking it outside of the reach of MassHealth. We know that they'll at least get the house when the client passes away. I have so many thoughts and I was trying to write them down so I wouldn't forget all these things. So first of all, just just to back up a little bit, mass, and not to get too political because just in general, I don't do that in my life and I don't like to do it on the radio, but mass health was is really intended for people with limited means, very few assets, very limited means. It seems to me that it's in this regard viewed as more of a social program that people, should I use the word entitled? It's, I guess I'm going to use the word entitled. People, a lot of people, I think that they're in or should be entitled to the state of Massachusetts helping with this very significant expense. That I don't, I guess I wasn't around at its inception, right? Or I'm not a politician, but it seems to me like that that wasn't the intended use for Medicaid. And if I just nerd out for a minute and do some math, People pay, you do pay into Medic. Oh my God, no, I was thinking the Medicare, the Medicare tax. Now my math is irrelevant, darn. I guess where I was going with that is maybe it evolves in the future to more of a broadly used social program. I don't know, you mm-hmm. know, what, ha- what happened. It, actually, if I had to guess, that's how it would evolve because it's, I don't think, 
I'm not sure how healthy mass health is, and I think that would have to evolve. And the way it becomes more a healthier program is to raise taxes and raise money to for it to be more of a widely used social program. I had some great math too. That's a bummer. I was thinking the Medicare tax <laughs> of one point four or five percent. I think I was going to translate that to how much care it covered. Darn, that was. <laughs> I, was, I love doing math on the air, but anyway, that's irrelevant. But um, I'm glad you brought up Medicare because a lot of people say, I'm on Medicare, yeah. so I'm covered. And Medicare doesn't cover long-term care. That's Very it. little, like it, exactly. a couple days or something. That's yeah. right. So yeah. there could be a rehab that could be paid for by Medicare, but yeah. generally you're going to exhaust that benefit. Yeah. And you're either going to self-fund or come up with some other form of payment. Yeah. Having said that, there are perfectly legal ways, as you were talking about, to shelter some of your assets and protect them should should you need to apply for Medicaid for long-term care later in life. And the conversations I have with people in this regard, I do think it often makes sense to at least have this discussion if you're not going to buy the insurance and if you're not very wealthy. There are people that are, have such assets in the multi-millions likely where they would likely never spend down to a point where they would have to qualify or apply for Medicaid anyway. With those people, this type of planning generally doesn't make sense because it wouldn't be implemented. It wouldn't be very useful. But I do think there are, and I've talked about this before on the show, where when it comes to, for example, long-term care insurance and paying for care, that that's the type of thing that's appropriate for the average American in the middle, right? It's not appropriate for someone very wealthy or it's not appropriate for someone with very limited means because of the expense, but it's those people right in the middle. And I guess that's how I feel about this legal strategy as well. It's right in terms of protecting equity, for example, in the home via some trust work. It's really not appropriate for people with significant assets because they would never spend down anyway. And it's also not appropriate for someone with like very few assets because if you have, maybe you you don't own a home or you have very little equity in the home and you have very few assets, but you want to protect them for your kids if you need to go into a nursing home, that's scary because if you don't, because what if you need it for yourself? The types of strategies you're talking about are, can I use the word you lock up your money or you, you, you give away your money, you make it, you get it out of your estate. It's not yours anymore. It's not accessible. You can't spend it. And so I think that the, the people with fewer assets, this isn't appropriate for either because you might need that in your lifetime. And you'd actually be surprised how many people would still consider the strategy and so sacrifice their own financial well-being to protect assets for their kids. We talked earlier in the show about people will almost do anything out of fear for the well-being of their children. That's right. And no, no judgment. I guess it's when I'm working with a client, it's my job to that client and make them aware of certain risks. But but anyway, it's the people in like that, and I guess I'm going to say like more average Americans or average net worths, upper middle class Americans maybe, where they don't have such significant assets that they would never reach that threshold of 125000 but they have likely more than they need where they could forego some asset, whether it's equity in a home or some other investment account and tuck that over to the side and protect it for their kids. And they likely have enough to live on. And that's where I think it's appropriate. I do think it's appropriate to talk about this strategy and put homes into trust because just generally the way that I think financial professionals and people means me in particular, but I think it's very common for people to craft their retirement plan such that they're not really planning to use the equity in their home. It's very uncommon for people to say, I might not have enough money like in my 401k to last my lifetime, but no worries. I'll just do a reverse mortgage and take equity out of my home. Nobody says that. I've had, I can count on one hand the amount of people that have been okay with that strategy, or at least, and certainly I can think of one person ever who 
proposed that strategy to me when we were doing retirement planning. In other words, voluntarily using equity in the home in, in terms of having a place to draw income from in retirement. Most people that own a home and ha- whether or not there's debt on it, but have equity in a home, most people don't ever plan to spend it and want their kids to get that anyway. So I think it's very reasonable and pretty common for people to pursue this legal strategy to protect equity in the home. Not as common, and I have, I'm very careful with how I advise people and I and I structure the conversation, and sometimes we do number crunching and planning in this regard. Not as common, and I think sometimes not wise, to put other financial assets into a, a trust like this. I've had people do it before. Sometimes, and generally, my process would be, so for example, just to back up, you can't, the type of trust that you're talking about where you're protecting assets from a nursing home, you can't put retirement accounts into that type of trust without liquidating, paying a bunch of taxes and putting the proceeds in there. But people that what, what I call non-qualified or non-retirement accounts, those are the types of assets that could go into this type of trust. And I've had people do it and sometimes it makes sense or sometimes put partial amounts of that type of account into this type of trust. But I just say tread lightly, do some number crunching. I've actually sat with people and said, similar to the conversation we had earlier about affordability of marital trust, for example, it's the same type of planning. Let's pretend you don't have this asset. You put it into this irrevocable trust, protect it from potential nursing home stay, and let's make sure you're okay financially on whatever's left. And when, you know, if you can determine that somebody would be, then by all means, protect it for the kids. But I just think that people should tread lightly when they're considering what to use to fund this type of trust. I couldn't agree more. And I think it's important to put this whole conversation in context that I talk about irrevocable trust with every client that comes in the conference room. So if you're 30, I'm going to tell you about it. If you're 85, I'm going to tell you about it. And it's not because I think it's a good fit for everyone. Mm -hmm. I think it's a bad fit for almost everyone. Mm -hmm. But the reason I talk about it is for education. Mm -hmm. So part of the reason I love my job is I get to teach people stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really fun. Knowing what is coming down the line, knowing what your options are, so you're fully informed, I think that's the best way forward. And I would say of the maybe let's say 10 people come in the door that say, okay, I want to talk about Medicaid planning. I want an irrevocable trust. Mm. Nine of them leave my office and say, I don't want an irrevocable Mm. trust. And I think the reason for it is there's a bunch of negatives, a a bunch of things that make it less attractive than it sounds. So number one- You're like the opposite of many other attorneys, I think. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And that there can be marketed- I was saying off air that they can be marketed to be so great, like annuities, but then you dig into it and they're really not so great. Sorry to interrupt, but you're a gem. Thank you. So the reason that it might not be the best option is you're giving away this asset. And just like you said, that has equity in it and it could fund part of a retirement. So if you exhaust your qualified accounts and you need that reverse mortgage, it becomes more difficult to get access to it with an irrevocable trust, if not impossible. It also makes it harder to sell the property and you wouldn't get all the proceeds. Theoretically, you could use the trust to buy another house, but it becomes more complicated. And some of that money will come back to you as part of your estate anyway, if you have a life estate. I don't want to get into too much detail, but it's not a silver bullet in that respect. But also you lose the ability to get conventional financing. So let's say you've been dreaming about putting on that kitchen, putting on that uh, amazing home theater, it's hard to finance that with a lender if you put it into an irrevocable trust. And your while the person that sets it up can be the trustee, you're essentially giving your 
house away. Yeah. Uh, which a lot of people at a very visceral level say, I worked my entire life right. to pay off this mortgage. Right. It's mine. It's right. mine. And th- I think the thing to put all of this in context, and usually we get to the point I say, it really boils down to what's your goal. Is your goal to maximize every penny that goes to your kids? Or is your goal to maintain your own autonomy and maintain a good retirement and really live out your life on your own terms? You can probably hear which way I think is the right yeah, option. Just but based people on will have different it. answers to that. Exactly. For sure. Yeah. And the other, sometimes I'll also put it, can you bear the thought of paying an extra dollar in taxes? And if the answer is, I can't even fathom paying more than I have to, it might be a good choice. Uh, but it's definitely not something where, oh, you're over 70, you need this trust, which I think is the default position, which I fundamentally um, disagree with. So can you talk about the inaccessibility component of these irrevocable trusts? Because I have had clients that have had consultations like with other attorneys and they're, yeah, it's irrevocable, and but we can really get at it if we want to. And so I think it's presented in different ways or maybe it's even written in different ways that I'm unaware of. So yep. can you just elaborate on that a little bit? Because it's my understanding that you put money in or assets into an irrevocable trust. It's out of your estate. You can't access it. But I don't know what language attorney other attorneys are using. So can you just elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, so I think it's less to do with the language and more okay. of a wink and a nod with the trustee. So if okay. you said, I'm going to name my daughter as the trustee, but if I really need the money, I'll have her break the trust and give it back to me. Mm-hmm. If I really need the house, break the trust and get it back to me. I don't feel great about that. I don't help people break trust. Yeah. Um, in my mind, if you're going to put it away and you're going to say, this is no longer mine, I'm putting it into the type of trust where I'm going to get the benefit for Medicaid or MassHealth, I think you, ha- you have to stick with that decision. Yeah. And so I know there are some attorneys like myself who say, I can't help you. You'll have to talk to a different attorney to help you break this trust. Yeah. Well, there's liability there or whatever. And from what I understand, I've tried over the years to get information regarding people that have broken trust and how that's viewed by MassHealth. And it's hard to get that information. And the only thing I I've really ever heard is it depends on who you get working with mass health assigned to your case and how strict they are regarding their their examination of your finances. That's the only answer I've ever gotten. Like, it depends. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. And, and I've wor- <laughs> Darn. I've had yeah. occasion to work with MassHealth, not necessarily in applying, but for dealing with MassHealth liens after the fact. Yeah. And I've made an okay. argument. So lawyers are paid to make arguments, yeah. right? <laughs> and so I've made an argument that I don't necessarily think is legally correct, okay. but is in the best interest of my client. And MassHealth has agreed with me and said, okay, no lien, uh, which... You can't really rely on that because I think if you have a different caseworker assigned oh, to a particular okay, case, okay. they might say, oh, no, that, that argument doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So if the way I look at it is my recommendation has to be by the book. This is what mass health rules You're say. You're a good attorney, Ben. <laughs> yeah, we, it, this is what the mass health rules say. This is how they should do it. Yeah. And this, I'm not going to help you violate those rules yeah. uh, is really the, God, that's such a the end of it. refreshing answer. So that's interesting that you said that. I'm glad that you talked to a lot of people about that because I think a lot of people want that information regarding, I, I guess, maybe not people in their 30s, people north of 50 that maybe have had an experience with a parent or a, a family member. And then especially as they get older and are having the conversations themselves and planning for themselves, that that, that information regarding options in terms of protecting assets, pros and cons, I think that information is really desired by the community. Thanks for that. Anything else on that? We just have a few minutes, by the way. Yeah. So the only thing I would say is the people that I talk to in their 30s, I say, I'm not trying to sell you this. Yeah, it's a little Uh, premature. A little early. But the reason I'm telling you this is one, sometimes people get sick before 
they're yeah. old. So that's yeah. one thing that can, comes up. But also, you're in a unique situation where you can actually afford the insurance. Because if you're 30, your premium is going to be much smaller and right. you can get locked in. Knowing what the finish line looks like can change it, it, to strain an analogy. You might wear different shoes. Yeah. And I think it's important for everyone to know. And even people that, let's say they're in their 60s, 70s, which I wouldn't consider old, they need to know about it so that as their health progresses, as their life changes, they say, oh, I remember something about this. Yeah. I'm going to talk to somebody because what you don't know can often be the worst thing. Yeah. Do you ever have any young people take you up on that and pursue that legal strategy or the insurance? No. So young people, if they ask to do it, I'd say, I don't yeah. know if I could yeah. ethically help you do yeah, this. Yeah, this yeah. Is, of course, I probably could, but no one's taking me up on actually doing the yeah. trust. Yeah. But I have had people say, oh, could I get a name for somebody that sells this long-term care insurance? Yeah. And that... I think that's a huge because yeah. when uh, to give the to finish that conversation where I say, OK, do you have long term care insurance? If they say yes, as long as it qualifies under the mass health guidelines and it has sufficient coverage, they'll never touch your house. Yeah. Yeah. The, and did we talk about this? The one the great thing about carrying long term care insurance coverage is that is it still one hundred and twenty five dollars? I think if you originally had one hundred and twenty five dollars a day of long term care coverage for at least two years. I don't know if those numbers have changed. You're shaking your head like my information is good. Yeah, then you're in the ballpark. I, it happens so like infrequently that. <laughs> that I have to go and look it up every. Yeah. But anyway, it, carrying the insurance has its benefits as well because even if it doesn't cover your full need at the time, if you satisfy certain minimum requirements in terms of long-term care coverage held, the state of Massachusetts will never put a lien on your property, Correct. even if you end up having to apply. So it has its benefits. And um, one last thing, I've had people come in and say, I'm paying $200 a month for long-term care insurance. They might be in their 70s, early 80s. Yeah. That's really expensive that's, for me. Can I let it go? That's so cheap. And they I'm have like, no idea. Don't, don't Keep do it. it. Oh my God, that's so cheap. Yeah. Keep it. Yeah, great. I, yeah, don't... Yes, this was that was great. Thanks for listening, everybody. You're listening to McNamara on Money. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed, joined today by Ben Cody, who's an estate planning attorney with Styles Law in Marshfield. He can be reached at, is it B-C-O-T-E at styles-law.com, his website, styles-law.com. You can find out more about me at McNamaraFinancial.com. If you ever miss any of our shows, check out our podcast on your podcast app, McNamara on Money. That's it. Thanks so much, Ben, for being Thanks here. Thanks for having me. Have this a, was fun. Thank you. Have a great weekend, everybody. See you next time. Bye-bye.